Hey everyone, welcome to episode 39 of the Defend Your Ground podcast. Today we're having another episode that is part of our Last Known Position series. Uh, this is a series where we will interview search and rescue volunteers from across the state of Utah. It has been funded by a grant from the Utah OHV program, so we're grateful for their support and everything they do to promote safe and responsible OHV use in the state of Utah. And today we are joined with a guest. Uh, his name is Mike Fogg. He has extensive experience in search and rescue, up mostly around the area of northern Utah, I believe. Um, we'll let him introduce himself and talk a little bit about his background, and then we're going to dive in and share some good stories of search and rescue experiences and talk about what are some things we could learn from all of this. So, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your experience that brings you here today? Thanks, Ben. Yeah, um, I was in the Air Force um, right out of high school, and after the Air Force, uh, they sent me here to Utah, and uh, I got out of the Air Force here, went to Weber State University up in Ogden, Utah, where I started running into and meeting some of the folks that were involved in the search and rescue unit out of Weber County, which is in uh, where Ogden is. And one of the professors at the university um, introduced me to search and rescue through, I was working at, at the time, the Wilderness Recreation Center on campus there. And, uh, okay. and yeah, so, so from there I joined uh, the search and rescue unit, and I've been a part of that for about 22 years. And uh, multiple teams there, including uh, mechanized and non-mechanized and on snow and, and uh, ground pounding in the dirt and high angle and all, all the fun stuff. And uh, we even have a couple rivers here, so we got some swift water stuff we work on, too. Yeah. And so primarily focus in Weber County or do sometimes, I mean, I've, in the, my past conversations with other folks, sometimes you get called out to other counties when they have a... A, a rescue that's demanding more resources, but your focus has been primarily up in that Ogden area and the mountains and the rivers and the deserts up around there. Sure thing. Yeah. We, um, we, you know, we're assigned our, uh, we're volunteered by the County or to the County. So, uh, uh oftentimes, uh, and, and big search operations, uh, there'll be multi-agency meaning, that the other search and rescue units nearby uh, may get asked to come join and help in their efforts, um, and oftentimes supported by other government agencies, uh, fire, law enforcement, and and the like. Um, yeah, in the neighboring areas. And you said twenty-two years. That's right. So that's so. Uh, so I imagine. So you started when you were like six. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. No, no I'm messing with you. Um, <laughs> So that's that's got to be probably hundreds of missions. You know, I didn't. I don't keep track of uh, how many missions we do. Somewhere between twenty and forty per year. I'd say forty is a, a lot for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and and rarely do we go below twenty. Yeah. So that's on average. That's a a lot of experience. I bet you've seen a lot of things. Probably just about everything you could imagine. And that's kind of what we want to focus on today. And so on these shows, I usually like to just ask the volunteers. I mean, a lot of times some of these rescues have been publicized in the news. There's ones that people know about. I don't need you to disclose any of like the private information about those that you've rescued. But I cut, we always like kind of re- grounding this in some of the stories. And so why don't you dive in on that and talk to us about maybe one or two rescues that come to your mind as ones where you kind of just wish the public 
knew the story of what happened. It's an interesting story, but that also maybe has some informational value as far as you you learn from other people's mistakes sometimes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that um, confidentiality for the patients or uh, targets involved in search and rescue. And, uh, yeah, I'll do my best to to do that. There has been quite a few uh, of the rescues. The the more interesting ones do hit the news. Um, But, hey, I'm going to try to focus on three different things that I think uh, the public could really benefit from. And one of those is going to be human factors, uh, risk management, and compounding decisions. In my experience uh, in search and rescue, very few people get in trouble by making a single decision. It oftentimes seems that when people make a decision uh, and things don't go the way that they hoped they would, they will then make another decision and then another decision, another decision. And uh, it's, it's oftentimes the compounding factors of those decisions that get people into a place where they really need search and rescue to come help them out. So, um, and like I said, the other ones are risk management and the human factors. Risk management, I think, is oftentimes overlooked. A lot of people, uh, when they go out, are really focused on their target um, mm-hmm. and whatever that happens to be for the day. And if it's a, you know, a big hill climb they want to do in their snowmobile or um, a particular ridgeline they want to get to or, or whatever their particular goal is for the day, they get really, really center-focused on that. Um, and it makes it really, really hard for them to, to really sit back and give us some good risk management. And then human factors, I think, are, uh, are challenging in, in many ways. But um, things come to mind and things leave your mind and things never in, enter your mind. And, and you end up uh, making uh, errors because of some of the human factors, oftentimes being social groups, um, whether you're with, with people you know or with uh, maybe someone that has a lot of experience so therefore you kind of default and allow that person to make bad decisions for you periodically or sometimes that happens so yeah uh, i think those three things are things that i hope that the public can learn to uh to help manage a little bit so i'll tell you about a story we had a couple years back and uh i'll try to mix in some of those uh, lessons yeah, those learned three things yeah, yeah let's go for it let's hear a story yeah, so uh, we got called. Uh, it was about uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon uh, up to the Monte Cristo area, which is the northeastern part of the county, of Weber County. And it mates real close or mates up with the southern border of Cache County. Okay. So this was an effort that um, the call came in, and we didn't really know where this person uh, was exactly. Um, so Weber County responded and, uh, we get up there, there's a, a witness. So in this story, there's a father and son. So the father's the witness. The son had gone down this very narrow Canyon on his snowmobile and, uh, got down in there and couldn't get his snowmobile turned around and couldn't get back out. The father and son were, uh, somewhat prepared and that they had these FRS radios where they could talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And the uh, father was talking to the son, um, and then for some reason they lost radio contact. So then again, it's like I said, about 3 o'clock we get a call. So we go up. Um, we deploy from the Monte Cristo snowmobile parking lot. We head out. The father kind of showed us where the canyon was. He 
was at the parking lot with us, rode up to where the canyon was. We looked on this canyon, and there is, uh, it's a very high risk to ride down in there. Um, so we decided to send uh, two of our highly experienced riders uh, down and with radio communication, and they got down there about 100 yards, and there was a waterfall. So the canyon was too narrow for the snowmobiles uh, to turn around. So they stopped at the waterfall, uh, made an assessment there, and they decided they were going to start hiking down. They could they could tell that uh, there was evidence or tracks that went down the canyon, so they decided they were going to start hiking down that way. Meanwhile, we had sent another team to the bottom of that canyon, um, which was about three miles away, and it was a very long distance. Three miles, by the way, crow flies, but it took a very long distance for them to travel all the way around. Yeah. So they started coming up the bottom, um, and from the bottom, it was uh, a lot of trees and brush and things like that, and they couldn't really get up. So the temperature's dropping. Mm -hmm. Dark is upon us by this time. The clouds started rolling in, and a storm started. Jeez. So the helicopters were unavailable for a big portion of that. The, The... team from the top kept continued to hike down and they eventually came across the snowmobile and they uh described snowmobile to us we figured out that was or obviously was the sun snowmobile um uh but the the sun was not at a snowmobile but they still had tracks going down so now this this young man had decided and he's an adult um but he had decided that he, since he couldn't get out that he was going to ride a snowmobile down over this waterfall which was about 12 feet, 12 feet at the time so now we're that's part of what i'm talking about those are compounded decisions yeah that makes sense so he had made a decision to go by himself down this canyon without his uh, teammate there his dad with us with him once he got into a position where he he then made a decision that the after the canyon was too narrow that he was going to go off this waterfall and mm-hmm. at some level i assume he had to know that he wasn't getting back up that waterfall so he made a commitment decision there he made a decision then to leave his snowmobile um with any of his resources that he had available on him and to him on that snowmobile and kept going down the hill or down the canyon so there's some compounding decisions if i could if i could uh ask that person if they would rather have uh, turned around and hiked back out at the top of that waterfall instead of going off that, I would hope that that person would have learned a lesson. Said, "Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea." You know? Yeah. Um. So, to kind of shorten the story a little bit, it took all night to find this guy. It was about um, the wind was blowing, the snow was coming. Um, we were in the negative teen uh, temperatures that night. The helicopter eventually did get to fly, um, but he, the helicopter could not get into this canyon. Um, so they did help us by giving us some light uh, while we were doing some work here. Mm-hmm. Um, the What people, I think, really want from search and rescue is a heroic effort, but people need to realize that um, it's the heroic effort of the patient that really helps them get out of that situation. So once we got to the young man and were able to uh, get him warmed up a little bit um, and get his wits about him, we gave him the option to stay the night or to hike out with us. Um, 
and he was a little bit surprised. He was like, how do we get out of here? Um, and I think that happens to a lot of search and rescue patients is once the rescuers arrive, mm-hmm. um, they kind of give up a little bit. So, um, but we don't have any more resources, really. We're, we're going to be human-powered getting out of there. So we were able to, um, we had enough resources that we were able to hike and pack down that trail quite well so we weren't post-holing through the snow. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just packed down the trail and started hiking them out, made them food, made them water, got them some clean, dry clothing, and, uh, and eventually we got them about, about 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, and at the top of that canyon, the helicopter was uh, available for him to fly out. Unfortunately, one of our search and rescue members uh, did get uh, injured in that exercise or in that in that uh, call out. Um, so we had to actually uh, life not life flight but helicopter him out also. It okay. was a life flight helicopter that was supporting us, but um, and then we had to helicopter some another rider in to ride his snowmobile out. <laughs> Fair enough. And. So how did they get it out of the? Because what didn't you say? I mean, it was down in this steep canyon, and was it? How did they get it out then? The snowmobile. So the the rescuer snowmobiler snowmobiles. There was two of them in the canyon, and they were above the waterfall. So we had enough resources there that we were uh, spent about two hours getting those machines turned around, kind of in place. Oh, I see. Um, that makes we weren't sense. Able, weren't able to ride them to turn around. We basically, just had to pick them up. And spin With, them inch yeah, by inch. Yeah, you had enough people. A single person yeah. could have done that. Yeah. And then, we, and then we rode them straight back up the canyon. They came down. The patient snowmobile stayed in that canyon about two weeks. Yeah. Um, that storm I was talking about did come in pretty hard. It actually buried that snowmobile. Um, about two weeks later, uh, some volunteers from the search and rescue team went up there uh, to help this guy out and got a snowmobile out. Luckily, it had snowed quite a bit, so the snow, the uh, waterfall I spoke of was only about six feet at the time. And they were able to block and tackle and pull that thing up over the snow, up over that oh, uh, waterfall and, and ride it out to the top. Okay. It's pretty challenging. It's a big, big effort. Uh, again, multi-agency. And uh, Yeah, so let's back up. I mean, you say this. I mean, let's talk about compounding decisions for a minute. Uh, what was the first bad decision here? These, my opinion was that they decided to split up and if okay. that was a conscious decision or if it was, I think it was a, a single party or single member of the party decision. I don't think that was a, a group decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, uh, that but yeah, man, probably, I mean, probably the kid just was like, I'm going to go off and do my thing and I'm close to my people. Like, it, but just not staying within eye contact or visual contact of your writing partner's that was the first bad decision. So, so then what's the next bad decision? Because that people probably do that all the time and don't have it go wrong on them. And so, sure. but this one went wrong. So what was the next bad decision? Yeah. So I think, um, if I was guessing, uh, I don't know what happened above that waterfall. Um, besides the rider skill, wasn't able to get that machine pointed in the direction that he probably should have been. I don't know if he wanted to or not. Um, but I'd say going to that wallfire was a was a heavy commitment uh, to his plan, which I think was to try to go out the bottom of that canyon, uh, not knowing that that you couldn't go out the bottom of that canyon uh, because of all the trees and and brush and everything like that. Yeah, so that's kind of a terrain familiarity question where 
the terrain kind of gets the upper hand on you on top of the fact you've separated from your group. Um, and that's probably like the first time where some, where what seemed like going off on your own, that, that could go wrong, but it does probably more often than not, it doesn't, but getting into unforgiving terrain that goes wrong fast. What's the next wrong decision? Because at that point you should, you, now the decisions are starting to get more consequential. Um, he gets into terrain that is unforgiving or difficult. What, what should he have done? At some point, you he should have turned back. I feel like this person was very target focused, and I think the the target was chosen uh, very hastily and quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and without the knowledge, like you said a minute ago, the train knowledge or what was down below or where he was going. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, that's. Anybody who's ever done motorized recreation, you'll you'll eventually have that moment where you get this like nagging thought of maybe going further isn't the best decision right now. Uh, I was with my wife and I were riding a side by side in Moab in one of the more of the high country plateaus in the monsoon season, and there's like a storm coming in. You could see it way off in the distance, and we're like, "Yeah, we'll be fine." Um, it's way out across the river. It's clear over clear off on the horizon but then it kept getting closer and and it eventually looked like you know what that's actually that cell's going to come right over us and at that moment i was like you know there is not a lot of cover up here we're really exposed um there's not trees there's not i mean we are the highest point on this landscape and it was this decision of do you keep going we wanted to go to this lookout point at the end of the route and I was like, ah, we can keep going. I think we'll be fine. We Eventually, I, it kind of just overwhelmingly came. I was like, this is not a good idea. And you're like seeing lightning striking kind of off to the sides of you. You're feeling like weird charges in the area. Like, I should not be here. I should have turned around a, a while ago. And nothing happened. I mean, we were fine. But it was like, when you get those senses of maybe you should turn around, there's always going to be another time that you can come try to hit that target like you said or most targets in an outdoor recreation experience are never going to be worth the risk and the cost and the difficulty and the frustration that would come from not doing or or like from turning around and going back and making the the safe decision what is because it obviously would have been safer to go back and get back to the truck and what with what we were doing so i appreciate that experience and that lesson any what are the other takeaways from like a lot of times the discussions come out, especially, so here we have a snowmobiler in terrible weather conditions or conditions that became terrible, maybe beyond the time frame that he thought he was going to be out there. Um, but if you're not planning to at least spend the night in the destination where you're going, even if it's just a few hours, a day trip, uh, one thing I've learned from all of these is you should probably have a plan to spend the night because you might end up having to do that, whether you're, wanting to or not um was he pretty prepared to have gone much longer than just the duration of because uh, a lot of times recreate these motorized recreators are not yeah that this person was not prepared uh for the experience he had um in a couple of ways one in um the gear that this person had with them and how they managed their time 
uh, in the backcountry, as well as uh, the education and training they needed. So uh, this person, for one, uh, stated they had a hard time and couldn't get a fire started. Mm-hmm. Um, and was did not think to use the gasoline that was in the snowmobile that he abandoned. Um, hmm. and, and this person actually had a extra gas can on the snowmobile, so it had been really easy to extract some of that to, to help start a fire. Um, this person uh, was cold and wet, um, Was uh, had some hypothermia when we ran into him, wasn't thinking straight. So the gear wasn't great or perfect for that type of condition. Um, and what I want to say is I want people to go in the backcountry, and I, I don't want people to be afraid and scared uh, based on you know the risks that are involved in going to the backcountry. Yeah. But I do want people to take a little bit of time to do some risk management on that. And it's, it's not a big, heavy load to do some risk management. It's... Um, it's thinking through what your goals and target are for the day. So when you're setting targets for the day and what you want to do, set three. Set your ultimate or your stretch goal, stretch target that you really, really want to hit. Um, and then back that down one to an acceptable target. Um, and then back that one down again to uh, coming home to your family type of target. You know, uh, yeah. Keep everyone happy and healthy and, and lower the stress. And then, and then say, hey, all of those are acceptable. If we reach our greatest target, that's awesome. If, if we don't and we hit that, hit that acceptable target, that's fantastic too. We had a great day. Um, and we come back and we tell stories and laugh and, and go about it again the next day, or the next time we get to go out. Some of that risk management can be taken just in the truck uh, on your way to your destination. Mm-hmm. Just talk about, like, the what-ifs. Uh, talk about what you got in your tunnel bag or your gear bag. Um, talk about your communication plan. And you can go online and find all kinds of risk management tools um, or all kinds of ways to pack your tunnel bag or what 10 essentials to carry with you in your backpack and where to carry them and all that kind of stuff. There's lots and lots of resources out there to get to go get. And, and I like to say there are hard and fast rules and then there are best practices and the more times you practice, the better your own best practices are going to be. So keep honing yeah. those things. And and it like like I said, I want everyone to go out and have a good time, and use all of the land and and recreational resources we have available to us. Um, and then just continue to learn and just be a little bit better this time than you were last time. And like you said, you. Uh, you and I both have uh, gotten away with it, so to speak, quite a bit. Um, you go out and you have those experiences like you just described, and uh, you get away with it. Nothing nothing bad happened. And uh, debrief those things with your with your friends and, and stuff like that. Ask about those situations while you're in the truck driving up to your destination. Just have those conversations and talk about, well, like, uh, like you said, what, what could be better? How could we have done that better? And I think that... Uh, goes a long way in just getting started down the track of doing good risk management. Yeah. And then as you get more interested in it and you get better at it, um, keep continue that education and getting better at that uh, particular skill of identifying risk and then managing them prior to having to do it in the backcountry. Yeah. 
one other thing I want to ask a question about with this guy's experience. He left his snowmobile, right? That's correct. And the other folks, previous guests I've talked to that have done snow rescues say that's usually not the right choice to make. Uh, in his situation, was that another compounding decision where he made a bad choice to leave his snowmobile behind instead of staying with the vehicle? Wouldn't it have made your job easier if he was with the snowmobile still? You bet. Yep. I th- I think that um, staying with your group is a good decision, and yeah. then uh, staying with your equipment is a good decision. Once he walked away from that snowmobile, he walked away from all those resources so even if he would have come to the point where he thought, oh, shoot, I've got some gasoline there. I could probably use that to help me light a fire. Yeah. Um, he was no longer with that gasoline. Yeah. And I've, when we interviewed a helicopter pilot for one of these episodes, and he says, if you, if you think I can find you on your own two feet out in the middle of the wilderness in the winter or the snow, that's going to be really hard. But for me to find your machine at the end of its tracks— that's really identifiable from the air. And so anyway, that's, that's information we've shared before, but because it was relevant to this case, I wanted to bring it up again. Um, so that was a great story. Uh, what are some, maybe do you have one or two more that kind of illustrate some different ways of looking at these three points you've brought up, which are the, let me see if I can remember them. It was the compounding decisions risk management, and something about the people or the human factor, right? Casey, you just froze up for a second. So I'm not sure yeah, you're happened, fine. But, but uh, So I was asking you what the three things were. It was the, um, we have the compounding decisions, risk management, and then something about the human factor or dynamic. The human factors, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, human factors, a lot of uh, psychology. Like, why do you make those decisions? Right. And and what influences happen there. And in this particular case, uh, this individual was alone. Um, and once you're alone, you kind of battle your demons a little bit and figuring out your thoughts and, and all that kind of stuff. So in another uh, incident that we had last year, um, uh, last year was a big snow year for us, record-setting snow in the northern yes. Utah area. Uh, a lot of fun to be had out there. Yep. And the family uh, took a uh, young, young son with them. I don't mean to pick on families here, and that's not my intention here, but mm-hmm. a lot of times families go out and play in the backcountry together. So in this case, uh, took a, about a 12-year-old boy uh, with them, first time on a snowmobile, and they took him to some pretty, uh, pretty challenging terrain. Hmm. Um, this individual was doing quite well on a snowmobile for his first time out. He was having a lot of fun. I uh, was able to get around uh, off the trail a little bit, so he was having a good time, and then uh, decided he was going to jump uh, the snowmobile and mis- miscalculated, uh, made a mistake there, and ran into a tree and got uh, injured pretty hard. Okay. Or pretty good. Um, so the party was big enough that they were able to send some resources uh, to get a cell phone signal and call and this one actually was call from Cache County uh, and Cache County called and asked uh, Weber County to help support so we were able to do the multi-agency uh, support for this particular call out so we got over there um, 
and it was a long ride, so it took us about an hour to get uh, from the parking lot. Again, the same Monte Cristo snowmobile parking lot. We went through the Hardware Ranch area all the way up to Cash. Um, mm. Was able to go around Hardware Ranch and then back into the mountains there. Um, and uh, by the time we got there, Cash County had already made contact with the patient, and we're we're there working on them. In this case, there was a lot of family. There was a lot of rescuers. Um, oftentimes, the the when you get a call for children, people respond in uh, in droves really to help out. Yeah. So in this case, when we we got there, the patient uh, was already being tended to, and one of those human factors I think happened was um, this individual was laying on the ground uh, on the snow, and uh, a lot of uh, blankets and things like that on top of this patient. Um, but it took us, I don't know, 30 minutes or so for someone to ask the question or realize this person was still cold um, and was laying on the snow and had like a small tarp underneath them but didn't have any insulation underneath them. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of professional rescuers there, I think, kind of uh, made the assumption that somebody did something that um, we all kind of know to do, uh, and it took us a minute to, more than a minute, it took us some time to get to the point where someone asked, like, this doesn't make sense. He should be warming up by now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were able to get him onto uh, some insulation underneath him and, and was able to warm up quite quicker or a little bit quicker. I'm going to back up in that story, though. We um, So on the when we were accessing this uh, scene, we got down to Hardware Ranch, and we met up with the, the Weber County team, uh, met up with some of the Cache County team. Okay. And as we're riding up the hill there, it's a bunch of professional rescuers at different skill levels, and one of these, uh, one of the Cache County guys uh, that was now wrangled with the Weber County guys uh, wrecked a snowmobile. And it is. It's one of those situations. It wasn't bad. He just went off the trail and uh, yeah. didn't have the skill to get back up on the trail. Um, rolled it over a little bit, and it was it was a, a manageable situation. Um, but it put us in the situation of like, wait a minute, this, you know, we have we now have another problem we have to deal with. Um, yeah, this isn't the first time I've run into this where the search and rescue team becomes also the search and rescue mission, um, yeah. or the it because it's. And I, I just want to stop you on that because a lot of times you never think you're going to be the person that needs a search and rescue mission. And these are usually almost all volunteer groups, people coming out just because they've got the training, the skills, and they just want to help somebody. And then they're going into a situation that is itself, because that person that's needing to be rescued is in a precarious situation by its nature, it's kind of precarious, and you're going into it too. So the likelihood that something also could go wrong um with your own team it happens frequently almost every person i've talked to has had an experience like this so just appreciate everything you do and hope people recognize that it is a lot of risk for you guys as well just because you're trained professionals what you're going into dangerous situations um but go ahead and so talk to us more about your your team member here yeah so this um augmentee we'll call them because it's uh again with mixed teams or the the team that i ride with and train with weekly throughout the winter uh we added this team member that which was a cash county guy 
uh, which I'm sure is highly capable and is disciplined, but in this particular case, um, snowmobile riding up that trail was not as disciplined for the day. So uh, anyway, we were able to uh, stop our progress uh, towards the scene um, and get that situation fixed, get this guy back up on the trail, and then uh, get going. But it definitely, uh, definitely was a stumbling block, we'll say. And yeah, that's that's generally the goal for uh, first responders is is to not make the situation worse. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, everybody but, probably understands that. But it's like that's and that's the point. It's like if you don't think this can happen to you. It happens to the ones who are trained to come out and rescue you from your situation. And so things can always and will and oftentimes do go wrong for even the most experienced and trained people. And that's why I like doing this podcast is just because it makes you think about it and say, how can I make sure I'm not the one that's creating the problem or getting myself into trouble or others into trouble? And it's a good thought exercise even though it's not it's not entirely impossible that one day you might be the reason somebody's having to come out but sure that's why we use the term risk management and not risk uh, elimination right we yeah part of the part of the reason we're out there is is because of the risk is there and it's pretty fun we like to go out and ride our snowmobiles and if you if you eliminate all risk that'd be a pretty boring life so yeah so you also are a pretty if i remember correctly dirt bike that's and right. A lot of the search and rescue guys I talk to are pretty avid dirt bikers, and those dirt bikes get you into the backcountry really quickly uh, compared to a lot. Sometimes they beat the helicopters out to the scene. And so uh, we've talked about two snowmobile rescues. Do you have any good examples of any time you've been on a rescue in the summer or in the dirt or something like that? Oh, yeah, we have we have a lot of call, like it's We get more summer calls than winter calls. I know, you know, as, um, uh, as we were talking at the show here last week, uh, there's another member of Search and Rescue there with me, and we were kind of going over some of those. And, and our dirt bike calls have been uh, fairly benign this year. Um, That's good. We yeah, it has been pretty good. We, we've, get a, we've got uh, three or four of them um, where the patient, you know, is on top of a mountain and has cell coverage and makes the call, and we can go right to them. Um, and, and that's another point I kind of wanted to make um, was technologies, the insertion of technology into everyday life and how that affects search and rescue. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes people have been able to or are able to make a phone call from where they are and need the search and rescue support or we're real close to where they are and need the search and rescue support. Um and then some tools too are becoming automatic, right? So I think the uh, the newest iPhone uh, has some crash uh, technology in it, uh, which okay. has been working has been working pretty well in the um, in the city area, but it, in the backcountry it doesn't work quite as well. Hmm. That's good. To in know. that sometimes you uh, make a mistake and you do crash your mountain bike or your dirt bike, and then all of a sudden your phone is calling for help uh, when you don't really need it. So <laughs> we. Yeah. We've been chasing cell phones around the mountains a couple times. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's good to know. So, if you guys, so is this the iPhone 15 or does the 14 do that as well? You know, I'm not an iPhone user, so okay. I, no, I know I bought a 14, 14 because does. it has yeah. that satellite stuff. I didn't know it had collision detection in it, though. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. So, oftentimes, we'll, or not often, a few times now, we've gotten a call, 
um, that says, hey, this person, you know, there's a crash detection at this location, and then you, you keep checking it, and the location continues to change. You're like, well, it can't be all that, that bad. must be a false alarm. And, yeah, and, you, and people on dirt bikes crash. I mean, you crash a lot. It's never it does, it's not always catastrophic, but yeah, yeah, it's part of the sport. And mountain biking and others, that seems to happen. So, yeah, yeah. so you've done like the swift water. You've done. I mean, are there some that don't include motorized recreation users? I mean, I, know I like to focus on those because our grant came from the OHV program. But mm-hmm. um, I think you anybody can learn from other experiences. I mean, what's been the search and rescue mission you've been on, where you kind of stopped and looked at yourself and said, "Man, I'm doing something pretty." crazy here i'm glad i have like i mean the guys that get on the ropes and stuff or i mean i've definitely talked to some where the mission itself is pretty epic um yeah so there's the high angle stuff that you spoke of um i've done a lot of the high angle work both winter and summer mm -hmm. um unfortunately not all of the uh, search and rescue targets come back uh, to their families so i'd say some of the bigger uh calls uh that you're coming to mind when you ask that question um do have and you're pushing back you're pondering uh the ones that really make you pause um i think oftentimes are the the patients that are less fortunate um in their activities and um you know it's a pretty small county um yeah sometimes when you're involved with these types of things you you know some of the high level athletes in your area um, and sometimes, um, you know, the patient. Yeah. So multiple times I've had the opportunity to go out and support families that needed it, um, at the time, um, and have known that patient, um, that didn't, didn't make it through the, the rest of the day or the rest of that uh, call. Yeah. And that's also part of it. And it's, and that's the other part too, that I think people, I mean, everyone I talk to, you can tell there's kind of a it's a burden you know, and not a, not a terrible one, but it's like it part of like you guys are asked to do things that are physically demanding. It's demanding on your time. And that's also emotionally and psychologically demanding to have to be play that role and um, do the recoveries in those cases that are not also the rescues. Um, so any other experiences you want to talk about or do we, should we wrap it up with some, basic takeaways of some of the things you just want people to know as far as things you've learned just over the years? Yeah, I think over the years, uh, search and rescue has changed the way it works. So I talked about the insertion of technology into our daily lives and how that interacts with search and rescue. And the search component has changed quite a bit in the the 20 years that I've been doing this Mm -hmm. uh, search and rescue, where the search component has become quite quite a bit less with technology yeah which is so probably a good thing i mean we know where the target is or where the cell phone of the target is um that's pretty good technology now so our ref, our efforts have changed primarily to um to being a big rescue effort more so than uh, a search effort um do you feel like there's yeah i mean Everyone will tell you outdoor recreation has exploded in the last few years, especially since COVID. Are you seeing that reflected in the number of search and rescue missions you're dealing with, or do you remember still doing a lot of them 20 years ago? Uh, 
I think we do kind of the similar amount um, of search and rescues, but I was going on to say that the rescue component is changing quite a bit due to how many people are in the backcountry. So we don't get the easy calls anymore, mm-hmm. or not very many of them, not as many. We The calls we get now are, are quite a bit more complicated in the rescue side of things. Because there's yep. so many people in the backcountry, there's a lot more self-rescue yep. um, or people okay. taking care of each other. Which is fantastic, um, but yeah, when they, it seems like now when they when they call for search and rescue, maybe on a scale of one to ten in the past, it, you could be you know three to seven, and I feel like now we're more like uh, you know six to nine or six to ten, like hmm. uh, as far as the complications and difficulty of the of the calls. So it should become just it's just an evolution, I think, of of what's happening out there, and I think the more technology gets inserted. Um, the the more this industry will change, I think. But. Yeah. Well, Mike, Mike Fogg, you have a great name for being a search and rescue volunteer, by the way. <laughs> 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 have you ever had to do any rescues in the fog? <laughs> no, plenty, plenty. Yeah. I imagine. Uh, well, I appreciate your time today and sharing your experiences with us. You pretty much are primarily affiliated with the Weber County Search and Rescue Team. Most of the search and rescue volunteers I talk to, their teams do have some kind of a fundraising apparatus. And you, I mean, you're volunteer funded in a lot of cases, um, operated out of a sheriff's department. I mean, is there somewhere where people can go if they want to support the efforts of your, the team you're a part of? Yeah, thanks. Weber County Search and Rescue, um, you can get to their website at webersar.org. Okay. Um, there's a donation button on there. I think there is also the application if you want to get involved there. Uh, I have the opportunity to be involved in quite a bit of leadership of this team. Yeah. And as I said, as the technology changes, I think uh, we've used some different technologies. So drones is a big deal for us now that hasn't been in the past. And, um, and also uh, software is a big deal for us. Okay. So, we, so use, there... we, we use multiple pieces of software. Um, and they're not free. Yeah. So uh, we could use support on, on that. Good to know. Yeah, we'll yeah. put a link to your uh, your team's page on the show notes of this podcast. And I, I always forget about this. I mean, a lot of a lot of future search and rescue volunteers are uh, they just need to go sign up, right? I mean, what does it look like if I wanted to become a search and rescue volunteer? What's that process if we were to fill out the application and want to be part of that Weber County Search and Rescue Team? Yeah, we're always looking at uh, new members uh, or looking for particular skill sets in in our team. Um, And I think a lot of the other teams are also. So look at your local county. Um, If you happen to be in Weber County and you want to support Weber County, please go check out the WeberSAR.org and uh, put in an application. It's it's a uh, it's a really really fun. Um, we do a lot of training together and a lot of playing. Um, Are you guys pretty of, picky, like who you let in, or you? Well, I'll say it in my terms: is uh, we're not really a puppy school. Yeah. So um, we do ask uh, for people to come in with a, a valuable skill set. We're happy to cross train uh, when someone comes in with a solid skill set. Um, and then they decide they want to do some other aspect of search and rescue. So if you're a really, really good snowmobiler or a dirt bike rider and uh, 
you want to learn to be a rock climber, um, we're happy to, to help support that type of thing um, in cross okay. training. No, that's helpful. Okay, well, we'll help share what you guys are up to, and we appreciate your time and being a great ambassador for your team that you're a part of. And uh, I, I like to tell people that I'm the kind of person you want me to be bored um, because if I'm really busy, that means something bad's happening, like a bunch of trails getting closed in Moab, which is our most recent fight. We're in at Blue Ribbon Coalition. And you're also one of those guys that we hope is is pretty much bored all the time and that you're not out on calls. But but at the same time, like you, we, we do want people in the backcountry. We do want people going and experiencing those benefits of outdoor recreation and go knowing that you have great individuals like Mike there to help you if you ever need it. But let's try to be as responsible as we can and as safe as we can and so that that becomes less and less necessary so thank you for your time Uh, we'll share this with everybody once it's out we'd love to have i don't know if your organization has a facebook page or instagram account or somewhere we'll have we'll try to tag you so you can help us share it and if you're listening to the show and you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet we'd love to have you be a listener and so go ahead and do that and that wraps up episode 39 thanks for listening okay